Welcome to The Good Life. I'm your host, Sean Murray. I'm really excited about today's episode on life lessons from Winston Churchill. It's the first in a series here on The Good Life where we will explore biographies of great leaders and investors and pull out lessons we can apply to our own life and investing. My guest today is Andrew Roberts, and he wrote a fantastic one-volume biography of Churchill titled Walking with Destiny. And you'll see in this episode, Churchill lived a flourishing life, and there's so much we can learn from his education, his writing, his speeches, his leadership, his work ethic, and even his time management habits. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Andrew as much as I did. My friends, I bring you Andrew Roberts. You're listening to The Good Life on the Real Time Podcast Network, where we explore the ideas, principles, and habits that help you live a meaningful, flourishing life. Join your host, Sean Murray, on a journey for the life well lived. Andrew Roberts, welcome to The Good Life. Thank you very much indeed, Sean. It's a great honor to be on your show. And it's great to have you here. You know, Churchill lived an incredible life. He was a soldier, a journalist, a war correspondent, a writer, and of course, a politician. His life spanned what I would consider the greatest and most significant events of the 20th century. He seemed to have this knack of being in the right place at the right time. He was one of the best orators the English language has ever seen. He was instrumental in bringing together the Allies during World War II and leading the Allies to victory. It's just an amazing story. And he also was promptly voted out of the premiership after the war. And his legacy is, I would say, under attack in ways in the United States and England today. So it's kind of a complicated story too. And I believe he lived a full life that has a number of lessons we can apply to our own lives. So maybe we could start with the early years and his education. So how did Churchill become Churchill? That's a very good question. He, of course, was saddled with the name Churchill, which meant that an awful lot of people had a lot of expectations of him. His father, Lord Randolph Churchill, was a very serious and significant Victorian Chancellor Exchequer, a very important statesman and politician. And of course, his great ancestor, the John Churchill, the first Duke of Marlborough, was one of the people who had saved Britain in the uh, War of Spanish Succession at the beginning of the 18th century. Winston Churchill was born in Blenheim Palace, one of the greatest, if not the grandest palaces in Britain. And so as a result, he had a lot of expectations really on his shoulders from a very, very early age. I think that was really one of the things that made him Churchill. As you mentioned in that very interesting introduction, he did have a knack of being at the right place at the right time. But it wasn't just a knack, it was a an actual drive. It was something that was innate within him. And one of the reasons that he ensured that he always was in the right place at the right time was because of this great weight of expectation on his shoulders. One of the things that really struck me about his early years was when he finished his boarding school, I believe it was at Harrow, he decided or elected not to go to Oxford or Cambridge, instead went to Sandhurst, the military academy, which I guess would be equivalent to West Point in the United States, and then embarked on sort of a self-education. Can you talk a little bit about that decision and then the self-education? He'd done all right at Harrow. He was actually a much cleverer boy than he 
made himself out to be. It's very rare for politicians to make themselves out to be thicker than they genuinely are. But Churchill did do that in his autobiography, My Early Life. And by the time he left Sandhurst, he certainly wasn't at the top of his class at Sandhurst. He was pretty far down it. And as you say, it's the West Point of Britain. He decided he was going to go into the army because he believed that that would be a quicker route to fame and fortune than going into Oxford or Cambridge, which, of course, an awful lot of his other contemporaries at Harrow had done. So it was a deliberate decision, really. He'd always been interested in the army and in warfare and so on, but it was a quite cold, deliberate decision to prove himself as a soldier as a way of basically leapfrogging a lot of his contemporaries into Parliament. So he had designs on leadership and political leadership early on in his career. Precisely, because, as I say, of his ancestors and also because of his father. Early in his military career, he was shipped off to India, as I recall in your book, and he wasn't too happy about that. But one of the things he did there was he started reading. And I found that really fascinating. It wasn't just that he picked up a few books. He seemed to go through the classics of Western civilization and to do it on his own in a very deliberate and determined and disciplined way. And it seemed to shape him. Can you talk a little bit about that, why he did that or how it shaped him later in life? Well, he was very conscious of his contemporaries, as you mentioned earlier, who went to the ancient universities in Britain, and he hadn't. And so he felt that he needed to sort of catch up with them intellectually, not just catch up, but actually leave them miles behind, as it turned out. The way he was going to do this was to uh, use the time in the afternoons when the rest of his brother officers went to their naps, have their afternoon nap in the sort of heat of the Indian afternoons. He would sit down and read. And he read the entire canon of great Western literature, not literature as in fiction, but uh, works of philosophy and politics and history and, uh, and pretty much everything else you can think of beyond fiction, in fact. And he wound up, by the time he was a young subaltern, and he'd gone off to India, of course, in order to try to fight in the northwest frontier and make his name as a soldier. But he also used that time to educate himself in a manner that was extremely disciplined. He must have read many thousands of pages. When one looks at the list of people whose books he read, it really is an extraordinary act of self-education. I would agree with that. And shortly after his time in India, he got involved or somehow finagled his way into hotspots around the world, places where Britain was fighting, and became a war correspondent. He was quite a good writer. He seemed to emerge a fully formed, mature writer. Where did that come from? Was that something he developed over the years? He certainly thought that it came from reading, and especially reading the works of Gibbon and Cawley and the great British historians. And you're right, he, he became a war correspondent. In fact, he became the best paid war correspondent in the world at one point. And it wasn't just the wars that Britain was fighting. He did fight in the wars that Britain was fighting up on the northwest frontier and in the Sudan and in the Boer War in South Africa. But he also, of course, fought in the Cuban, or at least attended the Cuban uh, civil war in 1895 against the, the uprising against the Spanish there, just prior to your American involvement in uh, Cuba in 1898. And uh, so he actually didn't just uh, 
go to where shots were being fired in anger for his own side, but actually whoever would take him, frankly. There was a quote that you quoted Churchill in your book during one of his articles when he was writing about his time in combat, and he said, nothing in life is so exhilarating as to be shot at without result. And that really struck me. Yes, well, he was shot at without results an enormous number of times. He missed death on so many occasions that he wound up believing that he was being specially marked out. There was a kind of destiny. One of the reasons that I subtitled my book, Walking with Destiny, was because of the great phrase that he came out with in his war memoirs relating to the time he became prime minister in May 1940. I felt as if I were walking with destiny and that all my past life had been but a preparation for this hour and for this trial. And he very much believed that. He thought that the reason that he'd escaped death on so many occasions, I mean, literally dozens of them, and in peacetime, that is, as well as in wartime, came as a result of him having what he called invisible wings beating over him to keep him alive when he was still at Harrow as a schoolboy, 16-year-old schoolboy. He told his friend that there shall be great upheavals and great struggles in our lives and that I shall be called upon to save London and save England. And he said that half a century before the Second World War. I find that just utterly amazing. And I wonder if that was just incredibly prescient in some way or some intuition, or he was tapping into some greater sense of knowledge in some way. Where did that come from? An enormous sense of self-belief. It came also, I think, from his father's rejection of him and his father's appalling dislike of him, frankly. Lord Randolph Churchill said things that no son should ever hear from their father. And his mother took very little notice of him as well. She was a great uh, society beauty, an American, of course, born in Brooklyn. But she was having affairs with the Prince of Wales and the Austrian ambassador and so on, and never really took any notice of her son at least until he became a signatory on her trust fund. (laughs) Up until about the age of 20, when his father died at the age, his father was 45 when he died and Churchill was 20, all he really had was hostility and contempt from his father. And instead of allowing this to grind him down, as it might do with any normal person, probably with you or me, it it actually did the exact opposite and gave him this sense that he was going to really uh, beat his father in, uh, in terms of greatness which, of course, he went on to do. You mentioned that he had this sense he was walking with destiny and everything in his previous life had prepared him for that moment when he became prime minister during World War II. What do you think the years of being a soldier and a war correspondent, how did that shape Winston Churchill? Oh, hugely. He very much was a soldier. He was in other things, of course, as well. I'm sure we'll get on to all the various other things he's done. He did in his life. But his knowledge, his understanding of what it was to be like on the front line, having those exhilarating bullets go past him was absolutely essential, both uh, in the Second World War and, of course, when he became the lieutenant colonel in charge of a uh, trench in a series of trenches as uh, commander of the 6th Battalion of the Royal Scots Guards in the Royal Scots Fusiliers in the First World War. And that really was a moment where every day he was in the front line, he was, of course, being subject to sniper fire and so on. And again, on one occasion, he left a dugout. And five minutes after he left it, a German whiz-bang high explosive came and uh, hit 
the dugout and decapitated everybody inside. And he believed that he had been plucked from that moment of danger and given safety in order for him to do great things in his It is amazing, as I read the biography of Winston Churchill that you wrote, the times that he almost died. And it caused me to think periodically as I read the book, what would have World War II have been like, or how would history have been written if any one of these numerous times that he dodged death would have turned out differently? It's amazing. It might well have been completely disastrous, of course, because the person who would have almost certainly become prime minister instead of Winston Churchill Lord Halifax, the foreign secretary, wanted to make peace with Hitler in May 1940, at the time of the um, catastrophic defeat of the British army and the evacuation from Dunkirk in May 1940. And had we made peace with Hitler, all sorts of terrible things would have happened. Not least, of course, the uh, United States couldn't have used the British Isles as sort of unsinkable aircraft carrier from which to liberate Western Europe in 1944. But all sorts of other monstrous things would have happened, including the possibility, of course, that Hitler would have won the war in Europe because he'd have been able to have concentrated 100% of the Wehrmacht and Luftwaffe against the Russians after he attacked Russia in Operation Barbarossa on the 22nd of June 1941. So I think history would undoubtedly have been much, much, well, certainly very different and much, much worse. I completely agree. We can all be grateful that he survived through those narrow escapes. But you did mention that he was an officer during World War I near the trenches or in the trenches. And what I found was really fascinating about that is prior to that, between the time he was the war correspondent and doing all these incredibly brave escapades and fighting in these wars and writing just wonderful dispatches that were wildly popular with the public, he became the Chancellor of the Admiralty. Is that right? The First Lord of the Admiralty, which is exactly that, same as Secretary uh, for the Navy. And of course, he held that job at the beginning of both the First World War and the Second World War. But he was forced to resign it in the First World War in May 1915 because of one of his many blunders. I think it's very important. And certainly when I was writing this book, it came to me very strongly quite how many mistakes Winston Churchill made in his life. I mean, this really is a sort of redemptive story. He made error after error, blunder after blunder. And the worst of them all was the Dardanelles catastrophe of 1915, the attempt to get the Royal Navy through the Straits of the Dardanelles between Asia and Europe, and to thereby knock Turkey, the Ottoman Empire, out of the First World War. It was a brilliant concept, but it failed dismally and led to the killing or wounding of 147,000 Allied troops. And so he was forced to resign as First Lord of the Admiralty and instead went off to the trenches, which he didn't have to do. He was over 40. He, he was married. You know, We weren't calling up married 40-year-olds at that stage in the war or indeed at any stage in the war. But nonetheless, he did. He thought it was his duty. And, and he went off and, and commanded his regiment in the front line of the Western Front. What I found very admirable about that was that it took some humility to go from being in charge of the Navy to being an officer in the trenches. And he seemed to do that with grace. And as you said, he looked at it as his duty and he dispatched it. That's right. Yes. He had a very powerful sense of public duty, of course, but also 
he knew that having uh, come up with this idea that had led to 147,000 killed and wounded, it was sort of almost incumbent on him to put his own life in danger, which, of course, up until that point in the First World War, sitting there in Whitehall, the Admiralty, it hadn't been. Although, <laughs> I mean, Churchill being Churchill, he also flew aeroplanes and drove extraordinarily fast. And he managed to, when one thinks we mentioned earlier about his close brushes with death, but I mean, just, to cap, just to sum up a few of them, he nearly died of um, pneumonia when he was young. He uh, was caught in a house fire. He nearly drowned in Switzerland. He was involved in two plane crashes, three car crashes. He was run over in New York, of course, in, uh, on Fifth Avenue and uh, 76th Street, very nearly killed then. I mean, it really was the most extraordinary series. There are many other examples as well, actually. So, yes, you do get very much this uh, sense that by 1915, when he had made this terrible blunder in the Dardanelles, that he felt it his duty to put his life on the line, even though, as I say, he was not in any way sort of contractually obliged to do so. Another hobby that he picked up around this time, which really surprised me, because you just don't see this that often in, in today's leaders as, that I'm aware of, is painting. He took up this art of painting. And it seemed to be not, I mean, it was a hobby, but it seemed to be almost consuming and something that wasn't just for a year or two. It lasted throughout his life. What was going on there? Why did he pick up painting and what does that tell us about him? I think there's a myth about this. The myth is that he did it because he was so depressed by the Dardanelles catastrophe. He did get depressed, undoubtedly, but he was not a depressive. He did not suffer from uh, what later be called black dog, i.e. manic depression. He actually was, was never a, a manic depressive, but, uh, and the times that he got depressed, the moments when pretty much anyone would have got depressed, including, of course, during this Dardanelles catastrophe. So he didn't paint out of depression, I don't believe, but he did paint because it did take his mind off politics. And it was a way in which he could entirely concentrate on something else. So he found it immensely relaxing. He put a lot into it. He um, painted 650 canvases in the course of his life, which, by the way, at the moment, go for about $1 million each. So not bad. It helped out his grandchildren and great-grandchildren, that particular hobby. And he tried every kind. He did still life. He did some portraiture. He did some self-portraiture, actually, on a couple of occasions. He painted his friends. He painted landscape. He really had a, a very good eye for painting, but it wasn't as a painter that he would have been remembered. He did it in order to relax his mind, especially in moments of crises like the 1930s, which I'm sure we'll be getting on to later on. What I recognized in painting for Churchill as I was reading your biography was it was something that he could go to at times almost in a meditative way or to get into some kind of flow state so he wouldn't have to think about all the other stresses in his life. And that's not just true of painting, of course. It's also true, I mean, in a way, I'm sure we'll come on to his writing, but also he was a bricklayer. He built a cottage and, and walls on his beautiful estate chalk in Kent. He was interested in butterflies. He was interested in all sorts of things that one wouldn't automatically um, equate with a soldier. Well, let's talk about his writing, because that's another part of his life that is almost amazing in its scale. When he wrote a book, it was often 800, 900 pages long, 1,000 pages long volumes. 
Where did he find the time? How did he develop the skill? Well, he, his first books were about his time in India. The Malakand Field Force was about his time, his first book in India. Then he wrote a book called The River War, which was about his time in the Sudanese campaign. And then he wrote other books on the Boer War and so on. And of course, in the, about the First World War. But he also wrote a biography of his father. He wrote 37 books in all and about 800 articles. And the thing that drove him was money. Because his father had been a huge spendthrift and indeed his uh, mother as well, they were constantly broke. And so he didn't inherit a large amount of money. And so in order to keep up his tremendous spending, his best friend F.E. Smith said that Winston was always satisfied with the best of everything. And the best of everything cost a lot of money. And so, and Churchill was broke pretty much all his life. He only actually was no longer indebted when he got into his early 70s and signed the contract for his history of the Second World War. Otherwise, he was almost always in debt. And so the way he fought off this debt and did earn an absolute fortune with some of his books, such as his histories of the First World War and Second World War, was to write books. And in 1953, of course, he became a Nobel laureate for literature. He himself was always annoyed that it hadn't been peace. He wanted it be the Nobel Peace Prize, but in fact, it was the Nobel Prize for Literature. He must be one of the only people in history who was disappointed on being told that he'd won the Nobel Prize. But the writing came, as I mentioned earlier, very much the Augustan style, the high ironic English style that you get from Macaulay and, and Gibbon. He grew out of that by his mid-40s and had adopted a more conversational approach, which he also was doing, funnily enough, with his speeches as well. And by the time he was hitting his stride in the 1930s when he wrote his great four-volume biography of his ancestor, the Duke of Marlborough, which many consider, including me actually, to be one of his finest books. He really was a, a first-class writer. I think his autobiography, My Early Life, he wrote in 1930, is one of the great autobiographies of literature. Well, he seems to have found or discovered, cultivated a lot of joy and happiness out of writing. At one point, you quote, Churchill is saying, to be able to make your work your pleasure is the one class distinction in the world worth striving for. And when he wrote that, he was talking about his pleasure he derived from writing. That's right. I mean, that's not to say that he didn't find it hard work. There's another quotation somewhere, which unfortunately I don't have off the top of my head, about how a book starts as your pleasure and then turns into your master, and then you wind up being its slave. And just before it, it crushes you, you kill it and, and throw it to the public. It's a marvellous uh, expert. I'm just trying to write my 19th book at the moment, and I feel very much that uh, Churchill got it bang on right. Trying my hand at some writing myself, I think I can relate to that. Maybe not to the degree of Churchill, because I've, I'm nowhere near as prolific writers as him. Not many people are. No one is. He wrote more than Dickens and Shakespeare combined. That's just incredible. What else can you tell us about these years between the two wars? Well, they were crucial for his career because he had started off as a conservative. And then in 1904, when he felt the conservatives had betrayed his beliefs in free trade, he crossed the floor of the house and so it wasn't until 1924 that he crossed back again and, and became a conservative again. So that was very important for him. He became Chancellor of the Exchequer, which of course had been his father's old job between 1924 and 1929. 
And then he, uh, when the Conservatives lost that election, he went into opposition, took the opportunity to go around America, which he knew had already been too many times, but he really got to know, travelled, I think, 29 states in all. And he wrote books, of course, to bump up his income. And so by the time he entered the 1930s, the decade that it was obviously going to be uh, crucial to him and to civilization, he was ready, rested, and was expecting at some stage in that decade to have office, which never came, not once in the whole of the 1930s, at least until September 1939. He felt like he was sort of wandering in the wilderness. He was somewhat outcast. I believe part of that was his continual drumbeat of warning the public about the rise of the Third Reich and the rise of Hitler. And this was something that you made pretty clear the public really didn't want to hear and didn't want to believe. And, and I think this speaks to a really important aspect of his leadership, which was his willingness to face reality, his willingness to tell the public things that were very unpopular. That's right. Yes, he didn't alter his message because people didn't want to hear it. And of course they didn't want to hear it. The British had lost 900,000 killed in the First World War. The last thing they wanted to hear was that we were going to have to fight another one against the same enemy only um, a quarter of a century later. And so, well, 20 years later. So it was something that, that he was ridiculed for. He was lambasted in the press. He was shouted down in the House of Commons. He nearly lost his seat in Parliament. But the key thing was that he had this tremendous moral courage that equaled his physical courage. And he continued to say the same thing, to make the same warnings against Adolf Hitler and the Nazis, regardless of whether anybody wanted to hear him. What it meant, of course, was that by the time Hitler and the Nazis had shown by their own actions what a danger they were to peace, people turned to him and realised and remembered that he had been the only person, the only major British political figure, to have made these consistent warnings all the way through that decade, a decade in which he was kept out of power. Another aspect of Churchill's life that really made a big impression on me right around this period when he became prime minister, and this is something you do a great job of kind of painting this picture in the book, which is basically the dire state that Britain was in in the late 30s and in the spring of 1940. You know, having been born 25 years after World War II, I always saw World War II as a foregone conclusion. I knew who was going to win as I when I when I looked at the history books, but when I put myself in the shoes of the British public or in the shoes of Winston Churchill in the spring of 1940, it really was not clear how things were going to break and it looked bleak. This was the very moment that Churchill, the prime ministership, changed, was passed to him. So maybe you could talk a little bit about that situation that he stepped into and what he did. It was a very dire situation on the morning of the 10th of May 1940. Adolf Hitler unleashed Blitzkrieg on the West. He'd already, of course, taken Poland back in the September and October of 1939. But in May 1940, he unleashed Blitzkrieg. He invaded at dawn that morning, Holland and Belgium and Luxembourg shortly afterwards, of course, to invade France. And the British army was forced back to the Channel. It was jolly nearly 
surrounded on a couple of occasions, but managed through a great miracle of deliverance, as Churchill himself called it, to get the British expeditionary force back across the Channel, although we'd lost 40,000 men in the course of the campaign. Nonetheless, we'd lost also all our tanks, all our heavy artillery, pretty much everything the men had apart from their rifles and bayonets. And so we then faced the onslaught of the Luftwaffe, which attempted to destroy the RAF. And had that happened, the Germans would have undertaken an invasion of Britain. And we might have joined all those other countries, however many there were, some 10 of them, that were to, to fall in Europe. So considering that at the same time, the Americans were showing no interest in getting involved in the Second World War, in fact, in the October and November election period, President Roosevelt said that he was not going to send your boys into any foreign wars. And that the Russians had been allies of the Germans since the Nazi-Soviet Pact of August 1939. Britain was in dire straits, in dire perils. Not just Britain, thank God. And the British Empire and Commonwealth had rallied round the mother country superbly on the same day that war broke out. So also the declarations of war came from Canada, Australia, New Zealand, South Africa, and so on. So there was a huge support overseas. But with regard to the, the actual defence of London, as it were, it was very much down to a Canadian division and the men who came back from Dunkirk without, as I say, any heavy weaponry. It was pretty much touch and go in the summer of 1940. It could have gone very much against us. He stepped into a leadership role in leading a country that was under threat of invasion. And, and there was a very real possibility that if the Royal Air Force was not able to hold off the Luftwaffe. There would be an invasion that summer, and it's a scary proposition. What Churchill did that maybe we could talk about also speaks to his leadership and his life, and one of his great skills was he started making speeches. I mean, he'd always been one of the greatest orators. But tell us a little bit about the speeches he made during this period. It's interesting, he hadn't always been. Right at the beginning of his career, he had tried to make a speech without notes in the House of Commons and had got 45 minutes or so into his speech. In those days, they used to make very long speeches and, uh, and lost his train of thought and sat down. And, and after that, he never spoke without notes again. He worked incredibly hard on his speeches. He'd sometimes spend as many hours as there were minutes in the speech. He would practice again and again. He used his capacity for language that he had honed as a war correspondent, as you mentioned earlier, and as a writer, to create these words, these speeches, which will live really for as long as the English tongue survives. They can still send tingles down your spine when you hear them or read them. And he had given thousands, literally thousands of speeches, his collected works of speeches, which are behind me in my uh, shelf here in my study, uh, cover over 8,000 pages. And so this is somebody who knew how to give a speech in public, give a speech in the House of Commons, and he honed all of those skills. This is a classic example, in fact, of what we mentioned earlier about all his past life been but a preparation for this hour and for this trial. What he seemed to do so amazingly well in those speeches was give hope to the people of Britain, to the British Empire, to or the Commonwealth, to even America, I believe, at the time. He provided a steadfast 
conviction that victory would come. You give the inside story. He was also a realist and he understood that was a possibility that London would fall and that he would have to either fight to his death or run off to a bunker somewhere and, and try to keep his cabinet going in secrecy. This was a trying time for him. That's right, yes. In fact, his bunker in North London, rather than the cabinet war rooms where he lived, was the place where he was going to himself fight and die. He uh, made sure that everybody had revolvers and, and rifles and they were going to, that's where they were going to have their last stand. But no, you're right. It was a complete make or break moment, really. And it could have gone wrong. Um, undoubtedly, we could have lost the Battle of Britain, in which case we'd have had to have brought the Royal Navy down from Scotland. And that, as we learn, as you learned, of course, in Pearl Harbor, when ships are attacked by bomber aircraft, some terrible things can happen. So there was absolutely no assumption that we were going to be able to get through 1940. It was, or oh, indeed, the early part of 1941. It wasn't really until Hitler's invasion of Russia in June 1941 that the great pressure came off the, the British Isles. From that moment, we could concentrate on the next stages of the conflict, which in December 1941, once Pearl Harbor had taken place and once Hitler had declared war against America on the 11th of December 1941, everything changed. And from that point, we could really think about where to strike back. And it's at this point in Churchill's career where I really recognize his skill as an administrative leader. I mean, it's one thing to deliver a great speech. I think we see that today with certain politicians that can deliver a speech, but he went on to manage and administer through his cabinet and through the people that he selected to manage the war and working with his generals to go from this perilous point, as you mentioned, 41, to eventual victory. What were some of the leadership skills, techniques, or habits he developed during this time? Oh, there were so many of them. Well, first of all, he tended to choose the best man for the job and then support him and really support him through thick and thin. He didn't care where the best man came from. If he was from business or industry or so on, he would take him out and put him in a key position, at sometimes key political position. But then if the chap turned out not to be up to it, he would sack him absolutely ruthlessly. He could be a truly ruthless sacker of men as well as a leader of them. He had several generals in the, in the Western Desert who he sacked one after the other until he finally got the one that he thought would win. A bit like uh, Abraham Lincoln, actually, in the early stages of your um, civil war. He was somebody who enjoyed getting people together, although he did expect them to take his orders. When uh, he would have huge rows and clashes with his chief of the Imperial General Staff and, and chairman of the, the British equivalent of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, Alan Brooke, and they would have massive rows. But he actually he enjoyed having the toughest and cleverest people around him because he didn't want yes-men. It's very rare for politicians not to surround themselves with yes-men. But he went out of his way not to. He wanted people who were constantly going to be questioning his judgment. And that didn't mean that when he made a decision, he didn't expect them to support it. He did. But nonetheless, he got a, a huge sort of thrill from the Hegelian process of thesis, antithesis, and synthesis. And that's something that, as I say, is fairly rare among statesmen. You know, another thing that surprised me about this period is his 
daily work habits and how he would take a nap because you don't picture the leader of the Western Allied forces during World War II having time to take a nap, but it sounds like the way he worked it, he got more out of his day, and I found that fascinating. Yes, sleeping for 45 minutes to an hour every afternoon of his life, of the war, meant that he could effectively, in his view, work for two days. The first day was from 8 a.m. until his uh, nap. And then after that, when he got up from his nap in the uh, afternoon, he would then work through until midnight, which he couldn't have done. He couldn't have done the day from 8 a.m. through to midnight every day. So he very much saw this moment in the afternoon, which, of course, his generals and ministers weren't able to do. So they had to carry on till midnight. They were exhausted, furious very often. They couldn't do the same thing as the prime minister, but the prime minister was still fresh as a daisy sometimes up until one o'clock. He got more out of every day. He believed that was the way he went about it. Yeah, I mean, he didn't get out of bed until noon either. So he would sit up in bed from eight o'clock in the morning and until noon, reading dispatches, dictating articles, dictating orders, writing to ambassadors and so on. He would do all of that paperwork. Then he would have a bath. Then he'd have lunch and, and or a cabinet. He'd go off and meet the king every Tuesday of the Second World War and have an audience with him. I was very fortunate in this book that Her Majesty the Queen allowed me to use her father's diaries. And I was the first Churchill biographer to be allowed to see King George VI's diaries. And luckily, the king wrote down everything that Churchill said after the audiences. And so we now know everything that was going through Churchill's mind every Tuesday at lunchtime of the Second World War. And there's a huge cornucopia of new sources about Churchill that I was able to use in this book. But I think of all of them, that was the sort of freshest and most interesting. I think that's a great addition to the book. And what I remember was that, now I may be wrong here, but it seems like the King's perspective on Churchill evolved over time. Absolutely. I mean, they started off, or at least the King didn't really sort of like or trust Churchill terribly much when he appointed him prime minister. There was a very much a, uh, a sense that because the king had been a great supporter of the policy of appeasement in the 1930s, and because Churchill had been a supporter of the king's elder brother, King Edward VIII, later Duke of Windsor during the abdication crisis, that these men might have actually clashed. But as it was, partly, of course, because of the great threat to the country, but also partly because they immediately became friends. In fact, uh, Churchill is mentioned in the King's Diary as his friend. He called him by his Christian name, which was only one of the King's four prime ministers who he called by his Christian name. And soon they became firm friends. So you're absolutely right. No, there was an evolutionary process on both sides. And there's a point where you describe this meeting where Chamberlain, the prime minister prior to Churchill becoming prime minister, realizes he can no longer lead the country, and he has to decide who's going to replace him. Can you talk about that meeting? Because I found that fascinating. Yes, the meeting was held at 4.30 in the afternoon on the Thursday, the 9th of May 1940, so the day before Hitler invaded in the West. Not that, of course, anybody at the meeting knew that that was going to happen. It took place in, in Downing Street, and Chamberlain needed to decide whether or not he was going to tell the king that Churchill should be prime minister or that Lord Halifax should be prime minister. And the only other person in the room at the time was David Margeson, the government chief whip. And Churchill 
wrote about this moment and claimed that there had been a very long silence and at the end of it, Lord Halifax had in a sort of embarrassed way backed down. But there's absolutely no other evidence for this having been the case. And I don't believe it. I think that Churchill did the same thing as he'd always done throughout his, his life. Whenever he'd wanted a job, and he desperately, desperately wanted the job of prime minister at that stage in the war, because he realised how necessary it was, that he should have that job. And so he demanded it. And the others, because he had been proved right about Hitler all the way through the 1930s, they simply didn't have the, they had the votes in parliament, but they simply didn't have the moral capacity to deny him the job, which was so obviously had to be his, not least because he was interested in war and warfare and Lord Halifax uh, wasn't. And so Chamberlain did recommend Churchill for the job. How did the king respond to that? Well, the king didn't like it. Uh, the king actually said, well, what about Lord Halifax? The king was friendly with Lord Halifax. Uh, Lord Halifax's wife, Lady Halifax, was one of the queen's ladies-in-waiting. They knew each other well, and he assumed that Winston Churchill could stay just running the war, whereas the actual prime minister could be um, Halifax. But Halifax did point out that because he was a lord, he'd have to sit in the House of Lords. And to have a prime minister in the 20th century during a, uh, a major world war in the House of Lords, rather than where the power was in the House of Commons, would just simply have not worked. Whereupon the king told Neville Chamberlain, well, then we can put his peerage into abeyance and he can sit in the House of Commons instead, which is perfectly true and, and right. You know, um, in fact, it's a law that they brought in only a few years later. So actually, the king did not want Churchill to be prime minister in uh, May 1940, but very soon, I mean, by June 1940, he recognised that he was the right person for the job. And uh, as I say, they became firm and fast friends. Another habit that maybe it's a time management skill that Winston seemed to develop at this time that I found really almost hilarious, but very effective was putting the stamp that said action today on certain activities. You get the sense he needed things to be done and he demanded that things be done and they weren't happening fast enough. Can you talk about that a little bit? It's not so much a stamp as a little red. I've got one actually on my, uh, on my desk. It's a little red label with the black writing action this day. And what he did was to attach them with a uh, paperclip to papers that he was sending to ministers that had to go at the top of the pile and be actioned there and then. And when you got one of these, you realized that if you wanted to stay in your job, you jolly well made sure that uh, whatever he was writing about to you that day that was dealt with that day. And there are lots of diaries and papers and correspondence and so on that attest to the efficacy of these, you know, the sort of electric shock that went through civil servants and ministers when they received an action this day label. I think it's something we can all use. We all need to administer our own action this day just to get through the day with our access to the internet and our ability to be distracted and whatnot. But maybe you could walk us through, towards the end of World War II, what steps he took to help achieve victory for the Allies and then his career after the war. Well, the Mediterranean strategy by which the United States attacked in Operation Torch in Northwest Africa at exactly the same time that General Montgomery counterattacked against Rommel in the Western Desert at El Alamein. And then together, the Allies then forced the Germans and Italians off the North African littoral, capturing a quarter of a million 
Axis troops in the May of 1943, then going over, of course, into Sicily and Italy, and only after the day after the fall of Rome, crossing over to the Channel to attack in Normandy. This was very much Churchill's grand strategy, which he sold to the Americans, even though the US Army Chief of Staff, General George C. Marshall, didn't like the idea. Nonetheless, President Roosevelt supported Churchill over his own Army Chief of Staff. And it was the strategy that drew German forces away from Normandy when the great uh, sucker punch of D-Day took place. So Churchill can be credited with a great degree of, of sort of masterminding of the strategy of the Western allies, at least in the Second World War. Once the Americans had landed in Normandy, he became a much less important figure, frankly. He did do some very important and useful things, such as save Greece from communism in the Christmas of 1944. But otherwise, the Americans had very much taken over the overall strategy of the war, as of course was the intention when Dwight Eisenhower became Supreme Allied Commander. Despite the fact that the Americans became more important at this time, I still found it amazing or almost unbelievable that he was voted out of office even before victory. Why did that happen? How did it happen? It was um, after the victory in Europe, of course, but you're right, it was before the victory over Japan. General election took place on the 26th of July, 1945, when Churchill didn't just lose, but he lost a landslide defeat against Clement Attlee's Labour Party. And this was because he was only one name on um, over 600 ballots. The Conservatives, of course, overall were very unpopular. They had been responsible for appeasement. Many of the same MPs Conservative MPs who'd supported appeasement were still standing in 1945. And the Labour Party were offering what they called a new Jerusalem of the welfare state, nationalisation of the Bank of England and socialisation of medicine and all that kind of thing, which a lot of people wanted after six years of gruelling war. And so he, even though he was cheered to the echo in meeting after meeting up and down the country, millions of people turned up to cheer him. But nonetheless, they also voted against him and brought in the Labour Party. He went on the day that it happened, when the results were coming in, his wife Clementine came in to the room and said, said, well, Winston, this may be a blessing in disguise. And he said, well, from where I'm sitting, it seems re quite remarkably well disguised. It was the saving of him, though, by the way. I mean, he was exhausted by July 1945. Had he been re-elected, I very much doubt that he could have seen through the, just through health reasons, seen through the whole of the next five years. He really did use those next five years to reinvigorate himself, go on holiday, paint pictures and relax. And uh, so he was ready to come back and become prime minister again in the October of 1951. That goes along with a theme that you talk about in the book, which is every time he had a setback, it seemed to, at the time, be a major setback or a negative but in the long run, when you look at his career, that setback always led to something positive. He made sure it did. You know, he was very good at using defeats and setbacks. And as I mentioned earlier, he also made mistakes. He, he got the gold standard wrong, the abdication crisis, women's suffrage, the Dardanelles, as I mentioned earlier, and many other mistakes. But he learned from all of them. This is another thing. Your podcast is called The Good Life. And one of the reasons I think that he did lead a good life was that as that he learned from all of these mistakes and he learned from all of the setbacks. This was a man who 
was constantly on the learning curve. He never thought that he, uh, that he knew it all. In closing, I wanted to read a quote that Churchill wrote about the importance of living an honorable life. And he said, the only guide to a man is his conscience. The only shield to his memory is the rectitude and sincerity of his actions. And then he goes on to say, with this shield, however the fates may play, we march always in the ranks of honor. Can you reflect a little bit on that? Yes, he said that on the 12th of November, 1940. It's one of my favorite speeches of Churchill's because he said it at Neville Chamberlain's funeral at Westminster Abbey, freezing cold day. And because they'd taken all the stained glass windows down because of the blitz, they only had boarding up. So the snow was coming into the abbey. And he said this about Neville Chamberlain, who had, of course, been his opponent, his enemy during the wilderness years, during the appeasement debates. And yet he was able to point out, and this is part of his big heartedness, really, that Chamberlain had taken the decisions that he had in good conscience, in good faith believing Adolf Hitler, which of course uh, ultimately turned out to be a tragic error. But nonetheless, he had not done it out of evil or sinister or cynical reasons. He'd done it in good faith. And it pointed also, of course, to Churchill's mistakes and all the various errors that he'd made in good faith. And so he sums up, there's another phrase in that speech about history, which is one of the most beautiful pieces of Churchill's writings. He wrote this, history with its flickering lamp stumbles along the trail of the past, trying to reconstruct its scenes, to revive its echoes, and kindle with pale gleams the passion of former days. That's something I try and do every day in my life. That's a beautiful passage. And Winston Churchill both lived history and wrote history and lived an incredible, flourishing, active life. And it's something we can all, I think, learn from. Andrew, where can people find out more about you and your books and your writing? Well, I've got a website, which is www.andrew-roberts.net. And my book, Churchill Walking with Destiny, is, uh, as they always say, available to all good bookshops. Great. Thank you, Andrew. Thank you very much indeed, Sean. I've really enjoyed this past hour. It's been a great pleasure. Thanks for listening to The Good Life Podcast. If you liked the show, please subscribe, provide a review in Apple or Spotify, and visit our website at seanpmurray.net. Until next time, have a wonderful week.